Coming to you tonight from the campus of UC Riverside, we're here at the base of the Box Springs Mountains, about 50 miles east of Los Angeles. I'm George Strait, and this is State of Minds. Academic life began here in Riverside nearly 100 years ago, when the state created a citrus experiment station to do research on California's big crops. They do more than just agriculture here at UC Riverside. There are a number of top faculty in the arts and humanities, science, engineering, and a number of other fields. UC Riverside is one of the 10 campuses in the University of California system, where every day faculty, staff, and students pursue knowledge in the public interest, making California a state of minds. Tonight we'll see what UC Davis is doing to fight the mite. That's the tiny pest that's killing honeybees and threatening California's almond trees. Then to UC Santa Barbara, where archaeologist Philip Walker goes to Iceland to reconstruct history. From there to a chat I had with the new chancellor at UC Berkeley. But first, it's Riverside and storyteller Karen Wilson. Jim Brown provides the introduction. Karen Wilson led a very full life before she came to Riverside as a graduate student in the history department. She describes herself as a teacher artist, using her skills as a vocalist, educator, and consultant to develop new curriculum in public schools. But she finally took time out to do something her busy career had so far prevented her from doing. Research and study in depth the nature and role of storytelling in both African cultures and among American slaves. I spent some time talking with and shadowing Karen recently and discovered through her performances on campus and in the community how stories from diverse cultures can bring very diverse groups of people together. We call today's um, thing is uh, songs and stories from Anansi's basket. How do we think about peace? Once there was a time you know when there were no stories. There were no stories. Not only were there no people walking around telling stories, there was no time after dinner to sit around and talk about your day. There was nothing to say when you walked down the road because at this time people had no cars so there was a lot of walking down a lot of roads and there were no stories. A story is a unique set of relationships and within those relationships people find themselves. There are many ways to set that up and a narrative takes us um, often through a process of problem solving and when we move through this process we move on many layers when someone finds himself in a story, the layer that they find themselves on might help them understand something they don't understand, help them take them through a problem-solving process. Um, we manage that in many different ways. We use lots of different tools to have that happen. One of the tools is song. Because story is multi-layered, song is even more multi-layered. It's like, it's like that, uh, those Greek uh, pastries 
that have all these delicate layers. Sometimes they touch and sometimes they open. There's air inside. They crisp and, and give you things you didn't have before. They're fun. Song and story together are incredibly powerful to have people connect with their own problem solving on lots of layers at once. Nancy, Father Nancy, where are the stories? He said, oh, he always talks a little funny, oh. <laughs> they, they must be with, uh, they written on me, the sky god, he has them all. And he, then he said, why, why don't you ask Yame? And they said, oh, all right. So they got up and they did it for real. Yame, great Yame, please give us stories. Nothing. <laughs> so they said, he's not saying anything. What are you supposed to do? And so Anansi says, don't worry, I'll get you stories. Have you ever had those, one of those moments? Like, oh yes, I'll do it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll get you stories. So he went over and he wove a magic ladder up to the sky god's kingdom. He went up to the sky god and he said, great Nyame, please. Give me stories for the people of this small village. And Yame said, No. <laughs> no. Why no? Great towns and cities have asked me for stories and I haven't given them. Why should I give the people of this? insignificant village. Oh, well, um, I tell you what. I will give you anything you ask if you will give me stories for these people. Anything? Anything! This little spider talking to a great big guy. All right. I want Onini the python. Oshebo the leopard, Mortia the fairy. Anansi says, not only will I bring you Onini the python, Mortia, and Oshebo the leopard, I'll throw in my grandmother too. <laughs> I understand story to connect in many ways for enslaved people, like universes of experience. Story can connect you to your ancestors. Story can take you over the water. Story can explain what resistance is. And, it's, and story can give you lots of ways to resist. You can uh, not work. You can um, um, rise up and beat the person down who is beating you. You can um, learn how to uh, keep community even when you're sold far away. Story empowers us. It's a story, you know. I want to provide so to a multi-layered experience so that everyone in the room can come away, ideally, with something useful, with something good, something they can think about that they perhaps were not thinking about before, or validation for a thought that so, they had that they thought no one was paying attention to. The story is powerful that way. 
I'm gonna sing when the spirits are sing. I'm gonna sing when the spirits are sing. When the spirits are sing, I'm gonna sing right along. I'm gonna sing when the spirits are sing. Come on now. I'm gonna dance when the spirits are dance. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm gonna dance when the spirits are Sometimes it happens. When the spirits are dance, I'm gonna dance right along. I'm gonna dance when the spirits are dance. For Karen Wilson, the past continually renews the future for individuals and for cultures through storytelling. This is Jim Brown reporting from UC Riverside. I'm gonna see. The story of California wouldn't be complete without a chapter on agriculture, a key segment of the state's economy. That's why it's big news when major crops are under attack. In this case, it's the honeybees that pollinate the almond trees that are in trouble. Paul Fontenauer explains why and how UC Davis researchers are trying to help. Commercial beekeepers are worried that a tiny mite that destroys the life cycle of honeybees may devastate their industry and cost the nation's fruit and nut farmers billions of dollars. There are going to be a lot of beekeepers after this year that probably aren't going to come back. Right now we've been averaging since the spring probably 30 to 35 percent losses, but there's, I know people, there's a gentleman out of Montana I heard lost out of 6,000 and only has 600 left. A tiny parasite that has developed resistance to pesticides means trouble ahead for farmers whose agricultural commodities depend on honeybees for pollination. Eric Musson, a UC Davis bee expert who provides scientific guidance for California's beekeepers, says the mite is now resistant to all registered pesticides. Like any um, agricultural pest that we target with insecticides or whatever to um, try to control them. When you use a material that kills nearly all of the pests that you hit, some escape because you miss them, but some escape because they have biochemistry that allows them to make it through that chemical treatment. And this isn't something that mutated, it's already there in the population. So over time, we actually select for those individuals so the population becomes more resistant as we continue the treatments. Bees pollinate more than 100 crops nationwide, representing billions of dollars. If for some reason we were to lose all of our honeybees, uh, California would be out about $4.4 billion worth of crops. The nation would be out about $14 billion worth of crops. And uh, your diet and my diet would change significantly because about a third of the food that we consume every day is the product of honeybee pollination. Every day, honeybees are flying around looking for food. Their food is nectar, which is a sugar solution they get from blossoms and pollen. Their hairy bodies collect the pollen from the flower, and the bees move the pollen around on the flower head and onto its female receptors, which ultimately fertilizes the flower. Farmers recognize this partnership of nature and nurture that relationship by contracting with commercial beekeepers who deploy bees in agricultural areas. There's a good one. There's a pretty good one. There's one that's died already. Hofflin, who maintains over 2,000 hives in Northern California, says keeping his bee colonies healthy 
requires constant vigilance for signs of infestation. When I started 25 years ago, about 5 to 10 percent of the hives would die every year. Now, like I said, so far this year up into the middle of, you know, end of December, beginning of January, we got 30, there's 30, 30, 35 percent. You, it takes a lot of work to restart new hives in the fall and it's very, or in the spring, and it's very expensive to do that. So, um, labor-wise, the, the cost right now, we need about 110 to $115 gross per hive to survive. That's no, without any profits per year. And with 30, 40, 50% of them dying out of this, and that number's probably gonna go up to $140, $150. That's a Varroa mite. The mice economic chop won't be known in California until after this year's almond harvest. Nearly one million beehives will be placed across a half a million acres of nut trees. The mites, about the size of a head on a pin, were discovered in Asia in 1904. This spider-like parasite did not appear in the U.S. until 1984. Beekeepers find them challenging because they simply overwhelm the colonies by sucking the blood of adult bees. That's a deformed bee. Its wings are all missing and deformed. That's mite damage. The mites tend to transfer RNA viruses into the bees. Depending on which virus it is that they are spreading in the colony, the bees will die immediately or they will be deformed and in poor health. Up at the top we see the varroa mite itself. It's actually much smaller than that, as you can see on this pupa where this family of mites is living. And the damage that they cause that we're worried about, you can see down here where this is a bee which has not had any mite activity on it. And these two individuals with their shrunken wings, their reduced size abdomen and whatnot, these are the individuals that have been fed on by the mites. Well, fortunately for us, the varroa mite on our honeybees is the only one has come to the United States from Asia. There are other mites, one of which we even think is worse than this one, that we haven't got yet. As a result, Mussen says the U.S. agricultural quarantines play a very important role in keeping out dangerous mites. The immediate future for bees is bleak. However, scientists are continuing to look for both biological and chemical control agents that will work against this mite. The biological challenge for researchers is how to kill one invertebrate, the mite, without harming another, the bee. The things that appear to be on what we'll call the front burner are organic acids like formic acid and oxalic acid. Um, there's a couple formulations of thymol that may be functional and may work. And then the USDA lab in Tucson, Arizona, has come up with a very interesting compound, uh, 2-heptanone. Actually, it's something that's produced in the heads of a bee, so it's a bee pheromone. Uh, it seems to be very, very toxic to mites. And they are micro-encapsulating that material in starch and then blending sugar and the starch material together to make sort of a candy bar. And you put the bar into the hive, and as the bees chew on the sugar, they release the heptanone. And we don't know if that's going to be very effective or not. Let's hope so. Another approach is to incorporate genetic material from honeybees that have survived mite infestations. So they interbred those amongst themselves. And um, they came up with a bee that we refer to as the smart bee. And that comes from SMR, which is suppression of mite reproduction. Uh, interesting terminology. But the truth of the matter is when they really took a good look at it, 
It's a highly hygienic bee. Hygienic meaning it removes things from the colonies that are bad. And what these bees consider bad are infested brood. So it, it, these bees will actually, I guess, sense, probably smell, that the brood is infested and they'll dig it out and throw it away. So they've been doing a pretty good job and we're trying to incorporate that genetic material into the commercial bees in our country. The nation's beekeepers hope the combination of chemicals and biological treatments comes in time to save their centuries-old profession. Paul Fotenauer reporting in Davis. Centuries old. Well, that's just the beginning for many of the archaeologists at UC Santa Barbara. They go back even further to study ancient civilizations on Iceland. Hunter Howard Nabb has this report. History or legend? Fact or fable that lives on from generation to generation? These are some of the challenges archaeologists face when attempting to reconstruct the history of a past culture. UCSB's Philip Walker is redefining history in Iceland as co-director of the Mossville Archaeological Project. Mosville Archaeological Project is uh, really interesting to me and I think to a lot of people because it's interdisciplinary. What we've done is uh, uh, draw together people from uh, the humanities, uh, from biology, geology, and so on to all work on reconstructing the history of a very interesting valley in Iceland that's the focus of a lot of accounts in the Icelandic sagas. So what we've been doing is looking at these literary sources that describe events that occurred in the Mosfell Valley and then in a way ground truthing them by going to the sites that are mentioned and seeing if there's evidence for uh, some of the things that, that uh, are said in the sagas actually occurring. And it's an interesting uh, historical problem because there's some saga historians that believe that, you know, essentially that everything in the sagas is made up and they don't really refer to things that, that happened in the past and other people think that there, you know, many aspects of them are actually uh, referred to specific historical events. The saga suggests that uh, Iceland was colonized by Vikings around the year 870, so that, that's one of the issues that we been looking at when do we have evidence for uh, people first establishing a farmstead in this valley that would you know correlate with some of the earliest migrants to the island and one th of the things that we found is at the site of the, the church at Reesbury that we've been excavating underneath it there's a farm and we think this is a farm that was occupied uh, around the time of conversion around 1000 AD by the law speaker of Iceland, who is the, the main political leader in the uh, Icelandic legal system. So we have a farm at this site, and then what we found is very interesting is that on top of some of the settlements that are uh, related to uh, farming activities, probably outbuildings uh, for the farm, 
we then have a church superimposed upon these. We think that this church dates from somewhere between about 950 and 1050 AD. Uh, and it's a church that's mentioned in uh, several of the Icelandic sagas as uh, being constructed there. The main physical evidence that we encountered that convinced us that we had a church is we found burials. And burials are, of course, associated with churchyards. And uh, once we found uh, burials, then we explored in the area of the cemetery and started to find the foundations of the church associated with the graveyard. The burials are very interesting because they provide information that's, that you can't get from any other sources on health, patterns of activity, violence, the genetic relationships of people who lived at the site. So it's, uh, they're a very rich source of uh, historical information that, that contains information that's not present in historical documents. One of the sagas uh, talks about people raiding the farm and then s some of the people at the farm running into the church uh, for protection. And one thing that we've found is that there's evidence in the skeletal remains that we've excavated of violence. One individual has a massive cranial trauma, probably from an axe, that would fit in with the story of of an attack on the farm where people were killed. One really great thing about Icelandic archaeology is that, that there are tephras, that is uh, layers that are from volcanic eruptions in deposits. And we know precisely the, to the year when many of these uh, volcanic layers were deposited. By looking at these layers, we can say, okay, everything below this layer dates from earlier than 1450. Uh, so it's a, in terms of chronological control, it's a very interesting uh, resource that, that Icelandic archaeologists have. There's so many different types of science that can be applied to reconstructing the history of uh, a site like this that really, I, you know, I don't think you want to do it if you don't approach it in this way because archaeological excavations are destructive. Once you excavate a site, you can't go back. And so uh, it's really important to get as much information as you possibly can out of the excavation when you do it because you're, you're destroying the evidence as you go along. One of the things that we're interested in the future is, is going down to Laravolger, which is the estuary and uh, harbor uh, at the base of the valley and looking for evidence of, uh, of a port there, seeing if we can find remains of ships uh, and commercial activity at that port. So that'll be an exciting thing if we find evidence of, uh, of Viking ships associated with this uh, settlement. We have a very strong commitment to bringing back the results of our research to the people of Iceland to help them better understand the wonderful history of, of their country. This is Hunter Howitt Nab reporting from UCSB. Finally tonight, part of a conversation I had with Bob Bergenau, the new chancellor at UC Berkeley. Chancellor Bergenau is a world-renowned physicist who spent 25 years at MIT. 
and before coming to the Berkeley campus was president of the University of Toronto for four years. During our conversation, Chancellor Bergino was quite candid about the challenges he faces and the ambitious goals that he set for himself and UC Berkeley. Funding is unfortunately at the top of the list. The, when you look at the objective data, then you see that uh, Berkeley and you know, a couple of the other UC campuses uh, are among the few public institutions that really you know, have competed one-on-one -on -one with the elite privates with their astounding endowments. And I won't talk about my life at MIT, but I can tell you it's different when you have a $6 billion endowment and 10,000 students. Mm -hmm. so, so, and, and the UC system, in order to maintain its preeminence, must ultimately have funding that's commensurate with the, with the privates. The people of California deserve it. They've had it traditionally. And, and so the funding which has been lost over the, several, over the last several years just must simply be restored. So first of all, there's public funding from the state. Secondly, we will need to see an enhancement in private funding of, uh, here at Berkeley in order, to, uh, in order for us to maintain the preeminence and to pay our staff and our faculty uh, fairly, frankly, right? And so we have, you know, outstanding staff here at Berkeley, and we, are, and we have an outstanding faculty, and they deserve to be uh, paid at a level that's commensurate with their abilities and, co and contributions. And so there really, you know, is, is a dire need to turn around this evolution that's been going on. So that's on the funding side. Uh, on, on the um, research and teaching, then there's also, I'm sorry, let me now go to access and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel very strongly that public institutions uh, have a deep obligation to serve the entire public. And so whatever we do, we must manage to put, to have it in place a system which ensures that the entire population of California has access to the University of California, Berkeley. I don't have any glib answers of how we're going to manage that, but I will make, this is one of my highest priorities. On the research and teaching side, clearly teaching has to be preeminent. Uh, we need to bring down the faculty student the student faculty ratio, which is growing too high at all public institutions. That's a funding issue. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to continue to allow undergraduates to have research experience one on one with their professors, which I think is really a, an important part. Uh, and Berkeley needs to maintain its preeminence of its graduate uh, school. But I know that the faculty here are totally committed to excellence. So the one thing I'm not worried about is the excellence of the faculty. Uh, as long as we can fund, support people properly, and I know that you know, one of the attractive features of, of uh, Berkeley as an institution to lead is the responsibility that the faculty themselves take for maintaining the, M, the preeminence of the faculty. That's our program for tonight. Thanks for joining us on State of Minds. I'm George Strait, here at the spectacular Science Library at UC Riverside. We'll be back again next spring from UC Davis. Until then, good night.